Excellencies, distinguished guests, my name is Keris Jones and I'm speaking on behalf of the Farmers Constituency. Keris Jones works for the United Kingdom's National Farmers Union, or NFU. The distinguished guests that she's addressing are ministers and heads of state at the 24th Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the year-end climate talks, or COP24, which took place the first two weeks of December in Katowice, Poland. She's speaking to heads of state, but she's doing so on behalf of the world's farmers. Or, more specifically, on behalf of 70 farmers' organizations around the world, which together work on behalf of hundreds of millions of farmers. Let me say that again. Hundreds of millions of farmers, big and small, who cultivate our fields, grow our food, and emit about 20% of our greenhouse gases. Until last year, farmers, as opposed to ministers of agriculture, were nearly invisible at these global climate negotiations, which is tragic for them and for all of us, because research shows we can get 37% of the way to meeting the Paris Agreement's two-degree target just by improving the way we manage our forests, farms, and fields. But how can we do that without including farmers? Here in Katowice, we were very happy to have seen the first baby steps of the Coronivia Joint Work on Agriculture. The Coronivia Joint Work on Agriculture that she's referring to is a new and long overdue effort to incorporate farmers into the global mechanisms for slowing climate change. It traces its roots to 2011, but didn't begin taking shape until after the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, as countries became increasingly aware of the role that farmers can play in meeting the climate challenge. It finally kicked in last year, just as a global farmer-led initiative was emerging, one that began over dinner at the Marrakesh Talks two years ago. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth, we broke it, we own it, and nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields, and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we'll hear how the world's farmers moved from the fringes of global climate talks to the center. My first guest is Fred Yoder, a fourth-generation American farmer who's been working his 1,500 acres for more than 40 years and who's emerged as a leading proponent of climate-smart agriculture. I ran into him in Katowice, Poland, where he told me how he's dealing with climate change, both as a farmer working his land and as a delegate to these confusing and often frustrating talks. 
Around the midway of the show, we break away for an NGO perspective to learn a bit about how these talks have evolved and why they can seem so frustratingly slow. Then we loop back to Yoder to wrap things up. My name is Fred Yoder. I'm the uh, chair of the North American Climate Smart Agriculture Alliance. That includes uh, Canada, United States, and Mexico. Uh, uh, we're a part of the uh, Global Alliance of Climate Smart Agriculture. We're the, uh, the North American uh, chapter of it, and we try to uh, figure out ways to make uh, uh, farmers more climate smart. Mm-hmm. You know, what, I, what I'm a little bit embarrassed with, Matt, I didn't even know that this alliance existed. How did this come about? Well, about five years ago, um, I was invited to a Global Alliance Climate Smart Agriculture Alliance meeting in uh, the Netherlands. And one of the things that we saw was the only ones that were negotiating a solution was the ministers of agriculture. There were no uh, farmers there. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we pleaded with them is include farmers. Because everyone down there was figuring out a way that farmers needed to change their ways, but there were no farmers to actually react or understand uh, what was going to happen. So uh, we pleaded with them and they started including farmers. And when that happened, uh, we started talking about how different landscapes have different uh, requirements. North American uh, agriculture is going to be different than maybe African or Asian or South American. And, and so uh, they requested to have different segments or different chapters. Uh, we decided to form the North American Alliance, uh, which included our three countries. And then we started uh, going back home and working with uh, getting farmer leaders uh, involved. And that's the, that's the difference between us and maybe some of the other segments of it. Is it's farmer-led, but we include everyone. We have uh, academia, we have NGOs, the NGOs at least that, that really believe and understand farming. And then we also have uh, equipment manufacturers, uh, seed companies, fertilizer. We all want to work to, together and, and understand uh, what we have to do to be more resilient, to be... Uh, uh, less risky to as we grow our crops, and then also, as a result of that, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But that's the thing. The CSA, or Climate Smart Agriculture, should mean the same no matter where you are in the world. And that's our three pillars. The first pillar, of course, is profitability and uh, sustainability, because uh, uh, farmers respond to economic incentives. The second pillar is uh, adaptation, which we have been adapting to changing climate, whether we admit it or not. Uh, but also uh, soil resilience and how do you make the soil uh, more healthy and resilient and, and include more carbon uh, so we can take some of those droughts and and uh, floods more easily and uh, adjust to what the environment is telling us. And of course then the third would be the uh, the one for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So if you do pillar one and pillar two, uh, pillar three happens automatically. Exactly. I'm sure you read the report that, that came out just before last year's climate talks. It's saying that natural climate solutions can get us 37% of the way to the two degree target. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Oh, yes, about? sure. Yeah. And one, one of the ones that jumped out at me was nutrient management. Nutrient management is fertilizer management because fertilizers are nutrients for plants. And the most common nutrient we feed plants is nitrogen, but not in its pure form. We feed it to them blended with hydrogen in the form of ammonia. Here's the thing. Plants mop this stuff up, which is good. But if you give them too much, they die. And too much activated nitrogen also depletes the soil and mixes with oxygen to form nitrous oxide, which is a greenhouse gas that traps 300 times as much heat as carbon dioxide does. You may remember this from episode 31 of Bionic Planet. 
Nutrient management then means applying the right amount of fertilizer or adding cover crops that pull nitrogen in from the air and infuse it into the soil, which dramatically slashes greenhouse gas emissions and increases yields, as we learned in Episode 7. It's all part of a new approach to farming called permaculture, which I'd like to cover in depth for you because it's fascinating and important. If you want to learn more about permaculture and how all of this impacts your food security, your retirement account, and your children's future, then help me help you by giving me a five-star review on Radio Public, Stitcher, or wherever you access me. That's important because the more reviews I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And only by reaching hundreds of millions of minds, literally, will we fix this mess. We can do it if we all work together. You can also help me produce more episodes by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com, where you can support me for as little as $1 per episode. Or you can help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher, namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for everyone who hears an episode all the way to the end. One of the ones that jumped out at me was nutrient management, what a cost-effective solution that is, and how it can actually pay for itself, right, if I understand right? Cause it, you're, it certainly can, because we can actually demonstrate where if you do a better job of saving nutrients and making sure they stay put, you can save up $100 an acre, mm-hmm. uh, because if those nutrients leave, you have to replace them. And so uh, when, when farmers understand the economics of, of maybe using cover crops to sustain those nutrients to, to, for the next crop, then all of a sudden he can save money. And farmers will respond to economic incentives, whether you get a, a subsidy or not. This is something you can do it on your own, and, and it, it works. Maybe flesh that out a bit when you talk about cover crops and nutrient management. I've mentioned it on the show, and I know a little bit about it theoretically. But in practice, what, what does it involve, this nutrient management? We've been growing uh, cover crops and experimenting with cover crops for the last five or six years, and, and it's it's not as easy as what people some, sometimes might think. Uh, you have to find the right cover crop for your area. Uh, we were starting out growing cover crops after wheat, which you have you know two or three months of, of growth where we, we grew a lot of uh, winter peas and, and radishes and things like that, some exotic things, and, and some legumes to grow uh, some, some nitrogen for the next crop. But after a corn-soybean rotation, you're limited on how much time you have. And so we've, we sort of uh, went to um, all cereal rye as a, as a cover crop. And so we have uh, the air seeder following up the combine as soon as that's the, com- the combine goes through and takes the beans off. And, and so all of our soybeans have been uh, seeded into cover uh, with rye. And then as much as the, the weather will allow us, we do the same thing with corn. Uh, this year, unfortunately, with with the problem of, of uh, 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 late rains, uh, we're still not done harvesting. So, uh, again, I'm living uh, climate change. I mean, we are, we are really, we have had 50% of the rain we normally get in a year in the last 30 days during harvest, and that's not, wow. that's not supposed to happen. So, again, uh, you have to manage those cover crops. One of the problems we have with farmers in the spring, if they don't ki- kill those cover crops at a proper time, then you have some problems with slugs and some other uh, stand uh, issues. But, uh, so... We're also uh, crop consultants back home, and so we try to get every farmer to try something that they don't normally do, stick their toe in the water, try something new on a small amount of acreage, and you'd be surprised how many times that you can uh, get a, a farmer to change his ways by, 
by actually doing it a little bit himself and building on those successes. What you're describing sounds a lot like what I see in Kenya, where they're shifting to more diverse farms, and they might have only four acres and you might have 1,500, but it's, just, it's the same idea, that you're more aggressively managing the land to, to manage it more sustainably. Uh, right? Is that... Uh, oh, that's true. But, but the, the thing at, and at this, this conference here, we, we hear an awful lot about the small holders, and it's really, really important that the small holders can, can adapt to new management. But I will tell you this, agriculture needs help, whether you're mm-hmm. medium-sized or larger, whatever. Uh, we're forced in the United States to do some different things because of economics. Our the prices of uh, commodities are very low right now, and so, so the first thing a farmer wants to do is how, how do you save money? And one of the ways you save money is save trips over the field. That means no-till or strip-till. No, no-till. What, what's no-till? What is that? I've well, yeah. no-till is when you actually uh, farm without actually disturbing the surface. All you do is you, some people call it slot farming, um, but, but what it basically does is you, just, you, you cut a hole in the, in the surface just big enough for, to put the seed in, and then you have your surface covered with the uh, silver from the previous crops. Uh, we've done that. Uh, we've been continuously no-tilling for at least uh, 15 years. And one of the things that you'll notice is, is my ground is, is completely full of earthworms and, and, and a lot of porosity with the, the rotted uh, uh, channels where the, the roots had been before. And you go to where somebody has been tilling for, for many years and, and it's, it's, it's just dead. Uh, there's no structure. We're proving now you can get a yield increase just by having the, your soil health and, and you've, you've actually mitigated your risk of having uh, the soil uh, in wet weather that you, you'll, call, you'll go through there and you'll make ruts with, when you have uh, no soil uh, structure and, and I don't make the same uh, problems they do. So it's, it's really important that the reason, again, the reason I went to no-till was for economics, but I will tell you one thing, I would never go back to farming the way I used to because I've seen such the, the value of, of the soil health and, and the, the resilience that my farm has today it never had 10 years ago. Uh, and combine that with some cover crops and, and start working with more with Mother Nature and finding out what's happening on, underneath the surface of the soil more than just you know adding X amount of, of nutrients and saying there, there you are. So uh, it's a different perspective, and, but it's also uh, a management tool like we, we, we are promoting precision agriculture where it's, it's uh, variable rate technology so you only fertilize the areas that need it, you only uh, weed the parts that need it, and, and so there you take the same amount of dollars and you spread them over a lot more area. And so economics has forced us to do a lot of stuff. A lot of people think that nothing's happening in the United States on, on uh, climate change, and that's simply not true. We, we're adapting, but it's just not in a very public and formal way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is it because you have large agribusinesses running these big, huge farms, they can't really do the, this sort of targeted management uh, at scale that a small farmer can. Is that accurate or is that just... No, that is that, not accurate. Okay. Uh, what, what, what is accurate is even the larger farmers, which, by the way, are m- still mostly family farms. They're just larger. The only reason they're incorporated is because of, of tax reasons. But most of the larger farms actually have hired a, a, their own agronomist, and uh, they can actually do more uh, targeted uh, research and things like that. The, the problem is that when you have the basis of your farm's survival on the price of commodities, and then we have a tariff issue right now, yeah. and all of a sudden uh, we found out that our, our bottom line has completely been flipped over. Now the only way you survive is, is cut costs. And so by, by trying to cut costs uh, and, and improve your soil health and, and your risk management uh, through, through the, the, you know, the, the climate change issues with higher degrees of, of, of droughts and, and also uh, more apt uh, uh, to get a big rain and things like that. Is so, so then you have to figure out how to make, make more resilience. And, and so farmers are really, really uh, in tune with, with soil health today. 
it's because of economic stress rather than trying to uh, mitigate uh, greenhouse gas. But the result is mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions, plus the fact that as you're sequestering this carbon, your soil health has just gone much, much higher. And so it's a win-win situation for farmers, but you got to get them talking about uh, uh, adaptation to climate change rather than, than arguing about whether it's man-made or whether it's natural. It's happening, so let's, let's react That's and let's, let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, the tariff issue, I don't want to get bogged down in that, but in the news it looks like it's really hitting you guys hard. Oh, but it's, yeah. it's, it's really, really hitting hard. I'll tell you, I'm not a big farmer, 1,500 acres, but between May and today, uh, my farm has lost over $100,000 just because of the cost of the tariff issues. You know, we were, we were uh, exporting a third of our crop, of soybean crop, nationwide uh, to China. It's, it's went to zero. And so uh, that uh, amount of soybeans has to be absorbed someplace else. Uh, we're still, we're finding new markets for that. Uh, the, Ar- the Argentina and uh, Brazil uh, folks are, are taking our place in, with China, but we're picking up some, some places uh, where they have not been able to fill. But... Uh, the bottom line is we got the cheapest uh, soybeans in the world right now, and we're not making any money. We're actually selling beans at the uh, b- below the cost of production today, and so it's the st- well. I think most of the Midwest farmers are trying to be uh, supportive of the president. I'm not a fan of tariffs, and, I, and to me, uh, the, my biggest concern is when you have tariffs in for a long period of time. We've seen this. I'm a big believer in history. It takes years to get those markets yeah, back. Yeah. And that's the thing. Is this is long-term damage. Why are, why are farmers continuing to support the president in this situation? I well, the, the president has tried to convince the, the Midwest farmers that this is going to be short-term pain, long-term gain, that, that uh, we need to help uh, with uh, the manufacturing uh, sector of the, of the world and, and also some other uh, things that we, we import from, from China as well as what they do. So because we... Uh, have a, a surplus of trade with agricultural products with China. We are the low-hanging fruit, so the brunt of the the force of the repercussions is coming to Midwest agriculture. And, and yeah, it's been hard, but I will tell you, unless something's done pretty quickly, uh, I think the president will probably end up losing a lot of support in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. One concern that I have with the shift to Brazil is just that if China's buying from Brazil, we could see an increase in deforestation associated with soybeans. Is that something you've looked into, or is that... Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's the unknown, uh, unreported uh, repercussions of these tariffs. You know, we were going on the right track. I mean, we were... I and mean, I've been to Brazil uh, four times and with the whole Red Plus uh, system, and, and they were they were going to be part of the solution to, mm-hmm. to greenhouse gas emissions. And, and now, because of these new markets... Uh, they're clearing land as quickly as they possibly can. Rainforests are, are back to being destroyed uh, to plant more soybeans. Mm-hmm. And it's really a shame because we have plenty of land to grow all the surplus soybeans that need to go to, to China there is. This is a political problem. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the, the unfortunate thing is this is exacerbating greenhouse gas emissions. And so climate change is getting worse because of tariffs. Yeah, it's so frustrating to see these issues that are... They don't have to exist from a scientific or agriculture or even an economic perspective. There's all this land laying there that's ready to be farmed, and then we're chopping forests. In we're order chopping to forests. You know, and the other part about this is, is, is I probably spent the last 20 years traveling the world uh, talking to new uh, end users that we supply with, you know, with, with commodities, with whether it's corn or soybeans. And, and we have personal relationships. We wanted to demonstrate we were reliable suppliers. 
and things were going along splendidly, but now we have a government intervention that stops those markets and stops those relationships from continuing. You know, I was in China this, this past uh, summer talking to those, uh, those end users and, and saying that, hey, we, we like your products, but, you know, we have to defend ourselves. So it's, it's a tit-for-tat thing, and it's a big, giant game of chicken. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, uh, somebody's going to lose. In fact, I think we're both going to lose if we don't do something. I, I was, I was uh, relieved to see the, the uh, conversations that, that the president and Chairman Chi had uh, mm-hmm. over, over the weekend at Buenos Aires that they took uh, a brief uh, pause, but that's still not the, the answer. We have to uh, really understand it, uh, that the sooner we get this thing done, the better, because Brazil actually planted soybeans quicker this year than they ever had. They will have beans ready to, to export in January. And if we don't start sending beans to uh, China you know, before January, we, we've lost that, that, uh, that window of opportunity. And so all these soybeans, this record soybean crop that we had in, in 2018, we'll have to find another home, unfortunately. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, will, where will it go? Will it go into feed? Will it go into tofu? I mean, what can be done with this to prevent it from just going to waste? Well, it's going to go to soybean meal, which is feed, and then also soybean oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, many parts of the world use that. That's their mainstay of, of uh, cooking oil. Um, there's also a lot of uh, technology that is being developed for non-food uses of, of soybeans. But the, the bottom line is we're, we're, we're swimming in soybeans, yeah. and we're the world's cheapest soybean right now. We're, we're stepping up a lot of our uh, sales to European Union. They're mm-hmm. buying a lot of our soybeans that would they normally get from, from Brazil. Again, we're the lowest-priced uh, soybean producer in the world right now, so it'll go someplace. But uh, there's already talk that we're going to probably have at least 10 million acres of less soybeans produced next year uh, based on market opportunities. Mm-hmm. Let's talk now about the solutions that you're working on, the, the alliance you've, you've created. This, this grew out of the uh, Ban Ki-moon's uh, New York Climate Summit in 2014. So this emerged around the same time as the New York Declaration on Forests and a lot of other more high-profile initiatives. Uh, tell me a little bit about your, your alliance, how it came together, uh, what you aim to accomplish, and how it fits into more the, the whole global move towards sustainable agriculture. Well, it is, it is our belief that, you know, whatever the plan is for, for agriculture to, to reinvent themselves, so to speak, or, or transform into something more sustainable or, or more productive, uh, the farmers had to be at the table. You know, too many times we have somebody, you know, create a grand plan for somebody else and say, here it is, work it. Uh, farmers are smart. Farmers are, uh, the, the leader in farmers are very innovative. And they can tell you right off the bat whether it'll work or whether it won't work. But when they're told to do something that they don't want to do, they find good ways around it. So if you really want to move the needle, if you really want to reinvent uh, the way we, we structure our, our agriculture system, then farmers have to be at the table. And that's really what NAXA, or the North American uh, CSA, was developed on, was having farmers as, the, as a leader, but include and bring in other uh, shareholders and people that, that, that have a stake in, in, in agriculture and say, this is what we can do. Uh, can you help us? And, and develop a plan based on what the farmer uh, can do on the farm rather than, than you know, the grand plan. And that's, it's really one of the hard things to, to, to work with with this uh, with the COP24 here is, is we're going through this Cornivia uh, workshop uh, process, and it's so slow. And it's you know we're having these workshops over the next two or three years, and and so it's going to take that long just to get a chance to, to put a plan together. The time is now to put something together. Let let farmers have it. We can do it. Mm-hmm. 
Coronivia, spelled with a K, is a common nitrogen-fixing grass, and the Coronivia joint work on agriculture is a relatively fast-track process for helping farmers around the world coordinate on meeting the climate challenge and engaging the United Nations climate change apparatus. The Coronivia process traces its roots to 2011, as we'll see in a bit, but it gained steam in the lead-up to the 2015 talks, when countries were asked to submit National Climate Action Plans, or NDCs, which stands for Nationally Determined Contributions to the Climate Challenge. A staggering 90% of the countries, it turned out, aimed to either reduce their emissions or adapt to climate change by helping farmers improve the way they manage farms and fields. At the same time, a farmer-led initiative was taking shape as well, and this accelerated at COP22 in Marrakesh, one year after Paris. Theo de Jager is president of the World Farmers Organization. I've stopped counting how many times we came to COPs all over the world with so much expectations only to leave disappointed again. Originally, agriculture was not even included in the Kyoto Protocol. We had a lot of expectations on how agriculture would be covered in the Paris Agreement. Until at one stage, two, three years ago, the farmers, I think it was in Marrakesh, said to each other over a dinner, well, how long will this continue? Shouldn't we just come up with a farmers-driven agenda and thrash it out with our colleagues from across the globe? And then instead of coming to visit COP, listening to what the parties have to say about how they think agriculture can go about towards the adaptation and mitigation of climate change, shouldn't we just bring an agenda to COP? To be fair, some environmental NGOs have been pushing to get farmers into the process for years, but others have argued that including forests and farms would detract from industrial emissions. At the same time, some farmers associations, including the American Farm Bureau, have pushed back against climate legislation even while embracing climate-smart agriculture. Ultimately, however, climate-smart agriculture has been gaining traction among farmers for years, and that gravitation eventually became a true movement, which is where the World Farmers Organization comes in. It's a federation of 70 regional and national farmers organizations, some focused on smallholders, some focused on young farmers, and others focused on large farmers. We first and foremost went to all the farmers' organizations we know. Hence, we have the president here of the Pan-African Farmers' Organization and Umnagri, the Arab-speaking organizations in the north of Africa. We went to the Asian Farmers' Association, went to the farmers in Latin America and in Europe. We signed an agreement with SEJA, the representative organization for the young farmers in Europe. And we sold the same dream to them all. Take this as your own. Drive it. This is a farmers-driven agenda. It's not going to happen by itself. We have to make it happen. To understand what's happening within the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, you'll have to know a bit about how these negotiations work. First, they take place throughout the year in multiple negotiating streams called subsidiary bodies. They focus on specific issues 
and then pass their solutions into the conference of the parties or the COP itself. One of these bodies is called the Subsidiary Body for Scientific and Technological Advice, or SUBSTA, which focuses on sticky science and technology issues, while another is the Subsidiary Body for Implementation, which focuses on, well, getting things done. These streams were broken into separate subsidiary bodies to break a massive complex task down into something a bit more manageable. But forestry got into the Paris Agreement because the two bodies worked together. And now Cornivia is doing the same. I covered Cornivia when it broke last year, and Tanya Rawa of CARE International explained things very clearly in episode 26. Here is an excerpt. The subsidiary body on scientific and technological advice, SUBSTA, was asked by the COP in 2011, so six years ago, to look at issues related to agriculture. And countries, or parties as we're calling them here, they were told to exchange views and then decide what kind of decision the COP should make. That was in 2011. Since 2011 then, parties have looked at five issues in workshops. Those have been issues around the state of the science and knowledge around adaptation and agriculture, around early warning systems in agriculture, vulnerability assessments for the agriculture sector, then also beginning to look at adaptation practices. How do we make sure that agriculture is able to respond to the changing climate around it when we're also trying to end hunger and malnutrition? And then also finally looking at different practices that support sustainable agriculture and food security and ultimately resilience to climate change. So they looked at all five of those issues and then they needed to decide, well, what do we do next? And when they got this mandate, it was 2011. But we all know that in 2015, we also ended up with the Paris Agreement. So there's now a lot of implementation going on at a national level, at a local level. We saw in the NDCs, the nationally determined contributions that countries submitted, that n about 90% of countries that submitted an NDC included agriculture for either mitigation or for adaptation issues. So it, when we look at how many countries included agriculture in their NDCs, we know that there's a lot of implementation going on. So as parties have then had a chance to say, well, we talked about five things, what should we do next? post-Paris, what should we do next, there's really a need to talk about implementation. Right, right. It's not just the scientific and technological issues. And that was really something that G77 was working very strongly for, to make sure that they were able to have that more open conversation. So what you, after Paris, you realized, oh my God, all these countries are looking to reduce their emissions and to adapt by improving their agricultural systems, making them more absorbent of carbon dioxide, emitting less methane, and then also just being more sustainable. But there wasn't any real science on, on that, or what, what, was, what was lacking in these NDCs? I think, it, I think it is more of a general thing. Since the mandate was given to Substa in 2011, there's been a tremendous increase in the amount of attention on this agriculture climate change nexus. Because agriculture is highly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, but is also a source of greenhouse gas emissions. And yet it's also then a source of food and livelihood for hundreds of millions of people. So it's this really complex nexus of challenging issues, climate change, resilience, and hunger. So how do you begin to look at all of those in the same conversation? Because the same year we had the Paris Agreement, 
we also have the sustainable development goals. And when you look at those 17 goals, you can really see how it's a matrixed way that we need to begin looking at the challenges we face. So coming into the discussions here and over the last year really, talking with different parties about what they can and should be doing on agriculture, there was a big push from civil society as well to have a more holistic conversation, mm. to talk not just about the emerging science and not just about different technologies and know-how, but to also begin talking with countries about what they're implementing, the challenges they're facing, what kinds of support may be needed to enable them to take more action. Okay, and I guess and that brings us up to what happened yesterday. Can you maybe can you walk us through that? I sure can. So it, parties, this is the third session where parties have really tried to negotiate some kind of outcome. Mm -hmm. um, they started in earnest last year in Marrakesh once they had concluded workshops. And then they continued in May earlier this year. So this is the third time they've come back together. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the draft decision that they're putting forward is really a hard fought piece of work. Um, so there, there was actually quite a lot of celebration uh, last night when everybody realized there I is saw the pictures. agreement on this. Yes. And, and what parties have said to, decided to do is twofold. Well, threefold. First and foremost, those two subsidiary bodies on implementation and scientific and technological advice, they're going to work together. Mm -hmm. So there's no longer necessarily an artificial divide between them. You need science to implement, but once you implement, you have more questions for science, and it's a back and forth. They also then, over the next three years, they want to do two things. One, take a look at what they did in those first five workshops and decide whether they need to do something next. Mm -hmm. Because those first five workshops were just in Substa. Mm -hmm. So what might need to happen around implementation to make sure that what was learned in those workshops has moved forward? Right, right, right. And then they also are taking a look quite likely at five new topics, beginning to dig into some more technical issues around soil, around nutrient and manure management, mm -hmm. around livestock, around how you assess adaptation and resilience in agriculture, and then also beginning to look at the socioeconomic and food security aspects of that climate change agriculture nexus. So they have some new things that they want to unpack, and this time not just from that scientific and technological perspective, but also from the implementation perspective. It's interesting you also, how many, how these things all fit together. You talked about the sustainable development goals, providing guidance, and that, that could also impact Funding, I, I guess, right? I mean, because big banks are tying their lending practices to projects that support the development goals, right? That's that's kind of one of the questions on the table, and and something that a lot of civil society is looking at this new effort um, to to begin talking about is what does any kind of finance need to support when it comes to looking at agriculture and climate change. We're looking at some of the, the protections we want to make sure are in place as you have small-scale food producers with insecure land tenure or the kinds of agriculture practices that maybe should be prioritized because they're the ones that help reduce emissions more and build resilience most. So we're hoping that that can also be part of the conversation. What should we be financing? As you can tell, it's a complicated process, but it's often more complicated than it needs to be. It took, for example, more than 25 years to get forestry into the mix, and not because it's overly complicated, but because a handful of very vocal NGOs thought that including land use would distract from reducing industrial emissions. Now, I think, and again, this is my opinion, but I think another reason it took so long 
was because mainstream media had failed to shine a light on the process, which is why farmers and others engaged so late. I'm working on an episode, or two maybe, that will correct that by bringing the history of these talks to light with a focus on forestry, how land use was locked out of the Kyoto Protocol, how the Coalition for Rainforest Nations revived it in 2004, and how it still took 11 years to get forestry into the Paris Agreement in the form of what we now call Red Plus, which stands for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Degradation, plus other land uses. This is a lot to absorb, and I apologize for that. For now, all you really need to remember is that farming is following a path that negotiators first cleared to create Red Plus. And that path is bigger than Coronivia. It also involves the global coordination of stakeholders that De Jager described earlier. So where does Coronivia stand now? Jason Funk of Climate 180 touched on this in episode 38. Here in the negotiations, um, there's been a long process. This, this issue has kind of languished for a while. It was part of the original convention in 92. It wasn't really until 2011 that the countries agreed to actually har- start having real discussions about this. So by that point, Red Plus was already well underway. Lots of forest issues were being dealt with and, and people understood what that all meant. Um, but in agriculture, we hadn't had those same discussions. And there's sort of a different group of people with interests in agriculture. So it's been a long evolution of like talking about, so what are the things we need to deal with here? Um, there's been a special emphasis on the needs of smallholder farmers who make up the most numbers, that they feed the most people in the world. And it was acknowledged that we want to make sure whatever we do in the climate space is also serving them and helping give them new opportunities as well. Last year, the parties agreed not just to have workshops and discussions and technical conversations about these issues, but to bring them in in a formal way into the negotiations. Uh, and they decided to do that um, under two subsidiary bodies, one of which was deals with science and technological issues, and the other deals with implementation. They didn't want more research necessarily. They wanted things that they could take home and apply and implement. So at this meeting, we've had sort of the first kickoff of that series of discussions that will carry through the end of 2020. Um, They've developed sort of a schedule of the different issues they want to tackle. Um, This one was a little bit of a a look back at all the issues they've talked about so far and those technical discussions, and they wanted to bring that all into play. Um, They also wanted to uh, bring in other uh, organizations that are linked to the UNFCCC process and who are also doing work that relates to agriculture to understand what they're doing so we could kind of put together the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and understand what the overall picture is, who could do what, where there are still gaps, um, and what capacities already exist that we don't have to recreate. Um, So the discussion here, they had a workshop uh, earlier this week. Uh, We heard from those other bodies and they made a series of presentations. Um, The outcome of that seemed to be, well, there's some overlap here. There's also still some missing pieces. So we think there is real work that needs to be done going forward. Yesterday then they met, not in a workshop, but in an actual negotiating session, and uh, a number of countries said, okay, well, we feel more informed, we know what's going on, uh, but we think that there are these gaps and we would like to talk more about those gaps as we go forward. So they'll continue along the schedule of this roadmap. Uh, The process is called, it's named the Coronivia process, um, the joint work on agriculture, Uh, and that will continue according to the roadmap they agreed at the last COP. Uh, They've begun that process here in a formal way, and then they've also um, 
started to realize that there may be additional issues they need to add to that agenda that they need to discuss, which was envisioned and there's flexibility in there to do that. Um, and they're starting to realize like, okay, well, we now have some things to talk about in more depth. I talked to a few other farmers here and they all said they appreciate the rigor, but they also worry, rightly, that the process is taking too long. Fred Yoder again. What we're trying to do is develop metrics that these practices actually do what they say we're going to do. So it's based on outcome to if you do X and X and X practice, then you can count on uh, this much reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. And that's really what farmers want to do anyway. Farmers mm. are doing that now anyway. Whatever they do as far as precision ag or cover crops or no-till, um, they, they know they have to know what the bottom line is. Right. How much is it helping or hurting their uh, operation? And, and that's really how we're going to get to where we need to go. And that's what needs to be included in, in the discussions here at COP24. Mm-hmm. Are you finding that the door is open to these discussions? Or what, what can be done to open it wider and move things faster? Well, I, I don't know if you've had a chance to go to some of the side meetings, but some of the, the frustration I have is it's there's a lot of folks here that have an agenda that come to, you know, but they're defending their part in what they do and, and the, one of the things that it's really bogging us down is is going through the process of, of deciphering you know are you helpful or are you hurtful to this process in my in my mind is let's get her done let's yeah. just let's just find ways to get it done and so this process is laborious and it's it's tedious and, and we have these workshops and we have to figure out how to gather and include everyone's thoughts but it's very cumbersome and so one of the things that we've heard on this on the sidelines is uh, Folks like the, uh, the, the World Farmers Organization, they want to empower their farmers and clear across the globe. And let's, let's get the farmers together and decide, you know, what can we do? And, and NAXA is, is working with the World Farmers Organization now to, to get farmers together and, and maybe we can help move this thing along mm-hmm. uh, quicker because expertise in, in some of these areas are important. But there's also a lot of expertise on the farm as well. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I have a theory too, and it's this. One reason these talks are going so slow is because our major media have failed to understand, let alone explain, climate change or its solutions. They failed for decades to warn you how bad things really are, and now they're failing to help you understand how we can fix this mess together. Farmers are woven into nature, so they've recognized the risk and are now unifying to engage the Paris Agreement process and address climate change. But mainstream media, which is my tribe, by the way, it's where I came from, still are not getting it. Most outlets still aren't giving their people the time they need to understand it, while grandstanding writers like Naomi Klein and George Monbiot have rightly recognized the threat, but they seem intent on torpedoing any solution that isn't instant and miraculous. That's counterproductive. I started Bionic Planet because I felt that I was becoming part of the problem part of the climate echo chamber, part of the group kicking around solutions that will only work if everyone gets involved, but doing little to bring all of you into the process. My goal with this show is to take what I've learned over the past decade and translate it for those of you outside the climate echo chamber to give you the tools you need to navigate the new reality of life on a managed planet, to help you understand how this new reality impacts you, how it impacts your food bills, how it impacts your job prospects and your children's future, not to mention your retirement account and civilization itself, because it does impact all of these, as do most of the issues I'm exploring here. And if these are issues you want to learn more about, then help me help you by giving me a good five-star review on iTunes, Radio Public, Stitcher, 
or wherever you access me. That's important because the more reviews I get, the more years I get. The more years I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to get out of this mess. And these farmers groups prove that it's possible if we work together. Today's show is a byproduct of an article that I'm writing for Ecosystem Marketplace. And you can access the article at EcosystemMarketplace.com. It'll go into a lot more detail than the podcast does. And you can thank my employer, Forest Trends, for its existence. You can also thank the Environmental Defense Fund for helping me cover the bandwidth costs of the podcast and some of my additional time. The most successful shows that I've produced, however, aren't those that come about as a byproduct of an article, but they're the ones that I create explicitly for the podcast audience. It's a whole different way of producing something. And to do those really well, which I don't think I've done yet, I need to allot more of my time and to hire a sound designer and a producer, even if on a freelance basis. Just listen to the credits at the end of your favorite big-budget podcasts. It's always more than one guy on a PC working in his spare time. If you find value in what I'm delivering, you can get more Bionic Planet by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. You can support me for as little as $1 per episode, either via bionic-planet.com or via patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. Finally, you can help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher. Namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show to the end, and that adds up. The, th- the thing we have to uh, be sure we don't allow, and that is to put one farming system ahead of the other and saying, I'm right and you're wrong. And right. so uh, we hear a lot about the smallholders, and it's really important. Uh, we hear a lot about uh, uh, agroecological um, methodologies. And agroecological uh, themes work on big farms as well. So, uh, you know, d- depending on what, you know, the, the, the you're doing as far as the, underneath the, the soil surface with your microbes and your, your working with Mother Nature, whether you're big or whether you're small, it's still, it's still important. So uh, the, the question becomes is how do you do something in such a, a monumental way that you affect change? Mm-hmm. And, and if you just do small holders, it's not going to move the needle. And we're not going to be able to feed the people. One of the reasons I work so hard in these areas is I'm really concerned. How do we feed the 9.5 billion people we're going to have by 2050? Mm-hmm. We can't do it the way we're doing it now. And we don't certainly don't want to be continually clearing more rainforest to make mm-hmm. more land uh, to do it. Let's just do a better job with what we have. Mm-hmm. Sustainable intensification, that's the word we use a lot. Yeah. And, and so how do we do more with less and create uh, uh, something that's going to last much longer than what we have in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, what, what can consumers do? Because it's, we, you know, we can't just leave it all up to the farmers. Consumers have to know that maybe we should have to pay a little more for food or maybe just understand more what goes into the creation of food or what the economy is like, especially in the U.S., where we have this weird rural-urban divide that's, that's kind of opening up. Well, How that's we- an excellent question because I do believe, this is my personal belief, is that that uh, civil society or the consumer needs to be involved. You know, we can we can produce some of these ecosystem services as we produce this this massive amount of food, uh, and I think the the consumers should be invo- involved and in, and in, in be able to you know help help pay for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like clean water, clean air, um, biofuels that we can uh, you know. 
create less greenhouse gas emissions and things like that that uh, maybe we need to have some way that they can contribute to to some of these ecosystem services because we're using up resources we need to really create more resources mm-hmm. and, and that's the whole thing about flipping this thing over mm-hmm. ecosystem services are something else i cover a lot on this show most deeply so far in episode 19. An ecosystem service is the tangible benefit that a living ecosystem delivers to us all. Forests, for example, absorb greenhouse gases and regulate water flows, while wetlands filter water and mangroves protect the coast. Payments for ecosystem services are payments made by those of us who benefit from ecosystem services to those who provide them. A farmer who maintains a filtering patch of natural grasses along a stream, for example, takes his own land out of production to protect a waterway, and payments for ecosystem services compensate him for that. Part of the farmer-driven agenda is to explore payments for ecosystem services. My understanding on ecosystem services in the U.S., and everywhere, really, is that farmers have been reticent because they don't want to be allowing people on their land. If it's water quality credits based on the amount of runoff you have from a farm or something, that that would require people coming to look at what's happening on the farm, and farmers are a little bit reticent about that. Is that an accurate perception, or is that, an, again, one of these things that I've heard that... <laughs> well, it's certainly not accurate, accurate in Ohio, because mm-hmm. I don't know whether you're aware, but we have some problems with algae blooms in yeah. Lake Erie. And uh, one of the things that's happened in the past uh, last two years is we, uh, the, the commodity groups as well as Farm Bureau has funded a multi-million dollar study of, it's called edge of field testing. What is actually leaving our fields? And it's scary. I mean, when we we have to have a starting point. I mean, how do we know what contribution we're making? And so we're considered uh, non-point source pollution and, and all the other you know municipalities are considered point source pollution. And so we're getting blamed for a lot of stuff. We need to know what our, uh, what our contribution is and the fact that if we can curtail that and we can keep it on the ground with cover crops we're saving money so i think that's that maybe was uh relevant in the past but today i think farmers really do want to be at least in ohio they want to be known as part of the solution not just the culprit of everything bad but the solution and that includes uh getting the livestock folks in and and manure manure management has got to be a part of the answer as well as uh, how do we put on uh, chemical fertilizer and and do it in a a proper way and timing and we, we've adopted the 4R uh, uh, solution set, that's, which the Canadians have really started. It's the right rate, right time, right amount, and, and, and the right product. Uh, and so if we do all that right, uh, that right there will be enough to, to cut our losses in half. But we can do better than that. I think when it comes right down to it, farmers are finally realizing that they can, they can have their cake and eat it too. They can do things in a better way and make, make more profit by, by changing their ways than they actually have in the past. And they also understand that that's the only way the future uh, will bring us enough uh, productivity to, to feed everyone. Fred Yoder closing out this edition of Bionic Planet. And in the weeks ahead, I'll be trying to pick up some of the threads we touched on here, such as how the U.S. trade war with China could increase deforestation in Brazil and also the history of Red Plus. Notice I said try because I do have a full-time job, and if you'd like to get these episodes sooner rather than later, be sure to support me by listening through the Radio Public app, which pays me a few pennies for everyone who listens through to the end, or becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. Thanks again to the Environmental Defense Fund for stepping up with help on this episode, and to my employer, Forest Trends, which makes everything I do possible. And be sure to check out the accompanying article, on EcosystemMarketplace.com. It'll go a little deeper into the weeds than the podcast does. Until next time, this is Steve Zwick, now back in Chicago. Thanks for listening.